Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. You may be seated, and good morning. We're glad you're here. Among my many theological pet peeves, and those of you who know me know that I have a lot of them, are those who will say things like, oh, but that's the Old Testament. We're not under law, we're under grace. We're New Testament people. Or they'll somehow pit the Old Testament against the New and the New against the Old as if there are contradictions there to be found. If, if you find those contradictions, you have read either one or both of those texts incorrectly. There are no contradictions. Indeed, the New Testament makes little or no sense apart from the Old. And likewise, the Old Testament must be read and understood in light of the New. I love the way Bishop N.T. Wright puts it. So Jesus came then as the completion of the story, which the Old Testament had told, and as the fulfillment of the promise, uh, which the Old Testament had declared. Bishop Wright is exactly right. We clearly see this in our two readings this morning. The prophet Zechariah was born in Babylon, what is now modern-day Iraq, during a period known as the 70 years of captivity. And he was among those who had returned back to Israel. He writes to his fellow Israelites to encourage and challenge them to rebuild the holy city, to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And along with that, he addresses the even greater need for spiritual renewal, for restoration of their hearts, so that they would learn to obey and love and serve God. That, in fact, is what led to the captivity in the first place. But through it all, it seems that he has a bigger picture in mind, as much of the Old Testament does, not just a kingdom for Israel, but a global kingdom of God. Not just the restoration of Jerusalem and the temple, but the ultimate and final restoration that is our salvation. And the reality of that, of course, began when Jesus first came into this world, when he was born and lived and died. It continues on to this day as the kingdom of God continues to spread around the world. And it will be finally brought to its fulfillment, its fruition at the last day, when the Lord Jesus Christ himself returns. John in looking forward to that day, the Apostle John writes in Revelation chapter 11, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign for, you can sing ever and ever. I, I honestly cannot read that text without hearing Messiah, Handel's Messiah in my brain. So uh, anyway, it makes it easy to remember that verse, doesn't it? Pilate, the Roman governor, could not have cared less about Jewish religion or customs or practices. He correctly saw the conflict that Jesus had with the temple leaders as a religious dispute and told them to settle it amongst themselves until they played the king card. The idea that a Messiah, a Savior, the son of David, David, of course, being Israel's greatest king, would someday come and deliver his people once and for all, from all this Gentile oppression and bondage and establish his forever kingdom, <laughs> that Pilate could in no way tolerate. And it was that claim that he was a king, as Pilate questioned him about, actually the king, that from a human standpoint is what, what got Jesus killed. Now I say from a human standpoint because strictly speaking, no one killed Jesus. In the 10th chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. 
The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He goes on to say in verses 17 and 18, The Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I believe our Lord is very clear on this matter, don't you? There can be no mistaking it. One of the many details that the Apostle John offers as an eyewitness is to note that just before Jesus died, he cries out those last words, It is finished, paid in full. The idea being that the work that I came here to do, to offer myself as a sacrifice for the sins of my people, is finished. And then John says he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now that phrase is not just some euphemism for died. I mean, we, we, in the King James and older translations, it says he gave up the ghost. Because that's just another word for spirit, and that was, didn't have the connotations it does in our day. So we usually translate it spirit. We still hear people say that as when, yeah, my old Volkswagen finally gave up the ghost. You know, meaning it's just gone. It's beyond repair. It can't be fixed. But this is not when it says he gave up his spirit, a euphemism for death. No, it is John's way of saying, again, what he's been saying, that Jesus' life was a sacrifice. It was not something taken from him. No one took his life. He gave it. And only John reports that, on the, on, that as the day drew on, the religious leaders petitioned Pilate to have the bodies removed from the cross, Jesus and the two thieves, because it was the eve of the Sabbath. And so to hasten their death, the soldiers would break the legs of the prisoners. Now imagine, if you can, just for a moment, a blow, or perhaps several blows, powerful enough to break both your shin bones clean in two. So that with your arms now disabled by them being hung on the cross, you would have no way of lifting your diaphragm up so as to bring in air. And death by suffocation would soon follow, which was why they did that. But when they got to Jesus, they perceived that he was already dead. So they did not break his legs, as John notes, fulfilling, as John adds, the prophecy of Psalm 34:20, that none of Messiah's bones would be broken. So just to make sure that he was dead, though, one of the Roman soldiers takes probably a spear and thrusts it into Jesus' side, which resulted in the pouring out of water and blood, meaning, most likely, but we can't be certain, a rupture in the heart muscle had occurred that, that brought on Jesus' death. The pericardium, that sac that surrounds the heart, was filled with blood, blood that had already begun to separate from in clear serum and red blood cells, which is why the perception of what he sees there is water and blood. Now this, like his bones not being broken, is also, as John notes, a fulfillment of prophecy. And we read that prophecy this morning from the book of Zechariah. God, mind you, God speaking through the prophet said, as this morning's reading just said, I will pour out on the house, I, God, will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. That's called repentance. So that when they look on me, uh, or so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as over a firstborn. Now, whatever that meant to those ancient Jews 500 years before the time of Christ, and there are a number of possibilities, there can be absolutely no doubt as to how the Apostle John came to understand these words. As we read a moment ago, he saw Jesus' death as the fulfillment of Zechariah's prediction. 
What he is saying in all this, what it comes down to is this. The Jesus whom he saw crucified, whose side he saw pierced by a Roman spear, who died before his very eyes, is none other than Jehovah, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who spoke to his people through Zechariah. The same words. He is God with us. That is unmistakable. I was commenting to someone between the services. They commented on that and that passage, and we were discussing it. And I, I told them, I said, nothing could be clear. Now, whether you choose to believe that, whether you, you're convinced that that is really true, that is exactly what John is saying and what the rest of Scripture and our creeds say as well. It was for you and for me for whom he died. He was pierced. As, as our liturgy says, for us and for our salvation. Our ultimate good, yes, for us, our ultimate good, but also for us, meaning on account of us. It was, we are the ones who pierced him and brought his death. Thus, if we are believers, if we're followers of Christ, excuse me, if we're followers of Christ, we are to say, and we say it collectively when we read Isaiah 53.5, but we can say individually as we read Isaiah 53.5, and pardon my paraphrase, but he was pierced, for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. My iniquities upon him, and that was, it was the chastisement that brought me peace. And with his wounds, I am healed. And I pray that that's your testimony today, that that is your claim to eternal life, that it is not found anything in you, but because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And that's why we call our message, the message of the Christian faith, the gospel. That word simply means good news. It was not even a religious word at the time. It just meant glad tidings, good news, as when a runner would bring good news to the city of some great military victory, for example. I like Paul's take on this. Paul, in describing this idea of one dying for another, says this, Romans 5, verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The idea being, of course, Christ died in our place. Thus, our passage this morning just kind of leapfrogs over, and I thought that was interesting. That's, that's the way the lectionary has it, to Zechariah 13, verse 1, which speaks of a fountain. That's something that would have been extremely rare in that semi-arid Mediterranean climate known as the Middle East today, where water was precious, where droughts did not mean you don't get to wash your chariot this week, or you don't get to water your lawn, or you're going to see a price of your vegetables go up because of the lack of water. That didn't mean that at all. It was actually much more serious. It often meant great suffering both to, to human beings as well as to livestock and even, even death. God, through the prophet, speaks of a fountain for the cleansing of our sins. And as, and as we read that, again, I don't know what your uh, hymn that he was growing up, but I automatically, and his default, goes to William Cowper's uh, English poet's most famous hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. How many of you know that hymn? How many know it? Good. The irony is pretty obvious, isn't it? Blood stains are ridiculously hard to remove. Very, very hard to remove, in fact. The stain of our sin is even tougher. It's impossible 
for us to remove it. But it is no match for the blood of Jesus. Amen? That alone can remove the stain of sin from our souls. Thus John can say in chapter 1, verse 7 of his first epistle, but if we walk in the light as God, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. That is nowhere more beautifully expressed than in another hymn, actually an Anglican hymn, written by Augustus' top lady called Rock of Ages. How many of you know that? Every hand should go up on that one. I love the phrase, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. For it is the blood of Christ, his once and for all sacrifice for himself, that is the instrumental means of our justification, a great word that Paul fleshes out in his letters, which essentially means that we are declared right, declared righteous before a holy God, and thus are saved indeed from, from wrath. But the second part of what Top Lady calls the double cure is the water, that with which we are daily cleansed, growing into the image of the Savior himself, what the Bible calls sanctification. That's what continues in our life after we have been justified. He continues to make us pure, not in some what would Jesus do kind of fashion. That's kind of an older thing. Some of you will remember that. It's not so much us figuring out what we think Jesus would do, but it is sanctification is God developing our character, our very being into Christ-likeness so that we become more and more like him. Even as his early followers, by hanging out with him, became more and more like him. Not perfectly, and it'll never be done in this life, but that is what the purpose to which God has saved us. Not just taking us to heaven someday, but to create in us a new person. John Calvin, the great Swiss reformer, put it this way, Christ brought the true atonement and the true washing, for on the one hand, forgiveness of sins and justification, and on the other hand, the sanctification of the soul, were prefigured in the law by those two symbols, sacrifices and washings. You can hardly read, especially the first parts of the Old Testament, without running into sacrifices all over the place. There were, there was, were blood offerings that you read so much of in the temple area, and in endless washings, which served some practical purpose, I'm sure, at times, but were mostly ceremonial, uh, both very costly, by the way. Water, very a priceless commodity, and even animals and so forth, very, very expensive, all speaking of the great cost of our salvation, which is free to us, however. Washings were the tokens of true holiness and the remedies for taking away uncleanness, removing the pollutions of the flesh, Calvin goes on to say. The fulfillment of both these graces is in Christ. And here he presents to us a visible token of the same fact. The sacraments, Calvin says, that Christ left to his church have the same design. Newness of life. It's rebirth. It's pointed out to us in baptism. And the Lord's Supper is the pledge of a perfect atonement. And here, as if that's not enough, Calvin refers us to St. Augustine. Augustine says that the sacraments have flowed from Christ's side. Isn't that awesome? For when baptism and the Lord's Supper lead us to Christ's side, that by faith we may draw from it as from a fountain, then we are truly washed from our pollutions and renewed to a holy life. And then do we truly live before God, redeemed from death and delivered from condemnation. It is no accident 
that our Lord was crucified at the time of Passover, of Passover, a feast celebrating God's liberation of his people from Egyptian slavery. A spotless lamb was slain, taking great care not to break any of the bones. It was all consumed, every bit of it, because after that evening meal, that was it. Next morning, they get up and leave Egyptian slavery forever. What a beautiful picture of our salvation, of what God does for us. All of this prefigured and portrayed the ultimate sacrifice that we celebrate every week, right here at this altar, at this table. Because Christ, our Agnus Day, our Lamb of God, our Passover Lamb, as our liturgy so beautifully puts it, has been sacrificed for us once for all upon the cross. And therefore, let us keep the feast. Maybe it's just me, and maybe some of you have wondered this just in a fleeting moment. How it is that a tiny piece of bread and a few drops of wine become a feast. And when I think of feast, I think of, you know, tables of food and drink and all kinds of good things and a huge celebration. Well, a feast can be a celebration of something that has happened, but it also can be a celebration in anticipation of what awaits us. And that's the spirit in which I believe we understand our communion as a feast. This morning, I would ask you to do just that as you receive the sacraments, to reflect on the love of Jesus for you and to realize that he did all that because of his love for you and I, even though we are sinners, even though we fail miserably. And do that as you keep the feast. One more hymn, since we're, this is hymn Sunday, I guess, for me. One of Charles Wesley's. I can't leave the Wesley's out now, can I? Finish then thy new creation. Let this be your prayer as well. Finish then thy new creation. Pure and spotless, let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Changed from glory into glory. Till in heaven we take our place. Till we cast our crowns before thee. Lost in wonder, love, and praise. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, in your great love for us, you gave your very life on the cross that we might live. You have given us the sacrament of your body and blood that we may never forget. May we be so nourished by it and by all the means of grace you give us that we may shine forth in a sin-ravaged and broken world that desperately needs the new life that only you can give. May those around us see that life joyfully reflected in us for all our days until we, with all our brothers and sisters, take our place at your table for your feast in your forever kingdom. In your holy name we pray.